0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Holy Community Church. Would you stand and join us in worship?
1: each other.
2: Good morning, La Jolla Community Church. How are we doing today? Everybody good? So how many people woke up an hour early and were frustrated this morning? Anybody? Yeah? See you in the back? Yeah, I did too. I'm house-sitting for my parents right now, so I have a little puppy that decided to wake me up at 4.30 in the morning. That was lovely. Not really. Um, Anyway, my name is Ryan Sylvia. I am the Director of Student Ministries here at La Jolla Community Church, and I just want to welcome you to our humble little church on this Sunday morning. Uh, If you want to, I want to draw your attention to the little bulletin here you should have gotten when you walked in. If you open that bad boy up right on the inside, you will notice a little space right there to fill out some information to, to tell us a little bit about yourself. See, we here at La Jolla Community Church, we are a family that believes in doing ministry together. And so we want you guys to take that time just to write a little prayer, what's going on in your life, whether that's a praise report, a prayer request. We want to partner with you in that prayer. So if you wouldn't mind filling that out and then ripping that front cover off, when the ushers come by to take the offering, if you would just place that in the offering baskets, we have a team of prayer warriors that during the week pray over every single prayer that is written down. So we want to partner with you, pray with you, and care for you and your family. So please take a moment to fill that out, and we will collect that during the offering. Speaking of being a family and doing things together, one of the things that uh, we did last week on Saturday was the Harvest Festival. So if I could have anybody, if you volunteered by bringing candy, if you helped set up, if you helped with the event itself, if you helped in any way with the Harvest Fest, could you stand up for a second? Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I love my little junior high and high school warriors over here. Thank you all so much. We decided this year we wanted to change things up a little bit and we wanted to really minister to our preschool families and the families in this neighborhood and so we moved it to saturday in the afternoon so that we could better accommodate these families and because of that we had almost 600 families on our campus yeah it was absolutely awesome it was absolutely awesome there should be some photos ah lovely volunteers super super cute I actually had the fantastic opportunity to be kind of a floater, making sure all the volunteers had the things that they needed, had, you know, the supplies that they needed to, um, to, to, to serve the people that were here. And as I was walking around, it was absolutely adorable. I'm walking across the patio, and I see this, this woman who is very wise, we'll say that. Um, and, uh, and all of a sudden, I look at her, and her face just lights up. And she looks to be a grandma and I look to the direction that she's looking and I see the most adorable little princess staring at her. And when she sees what I'm assuming is grandma, her face just beams and she sprints across the patio just into the arms of grandma who's waiting to just love on her. And it was one of the most precious and special moments of the event, and it only happened because we were God's hands and feet, and we ministered to the people in this neighborhood. I don't know if you guys know, but a lot of the people that live in this area don't know the Lord, don't know Jesus. So when they send their kids to preschool or when they show up to our events, that is the one touch point that they get for Jesus in their life. So I would encourage you guys, if you didn't get a chance to help out with the Harvest Fest, we've got Christmas coming up right around the corner. Invite somebody to a Christmas Eve service. Invite somebody onto this campus because you never know what that single invitation could do. Um, thank you all for, for helping out. It was a fantastic, fantastic event. Um, now I'd like to invite up Amy to talk about the women's retreat. Thank you. Amy.
1: Good morning, church family. My name is Amy DeFair. I don't want to be on stage, so I'll stand right here. <laughs> i just Recapping our women's win, women's retreat, we just went to the fall Forest Home Retreat, and it was absolutely amazing. I encourage any of you women next year to come and join us. We're doing it again. And registration actually just opened, so it's going to be around the same time next October. There's pictures on the screen, and my favorite part was just community. I mean, there's me and Tricia hiking, and we got lost in the woods, and... <laughs> It was super fun. We were completely lost, and she trusted me, so we just kept on hiking, (laughs) and it's just the community. We sat together for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We hiked together. We talked together. It was amazing, and you're there with seven or eight other churches so it's a community of women not just from our church but all over but they give you the table for your church it's set up and we had small group together but then you're in a huge community of other sisters in christ which was amazing because people met new friends and different people and so i just encourage you all to go i mean it was a time to stop the world for 48 hours and really unplug and be with jesus and other sisters, and it was wonderful, because we're all so busy. We just don't get to sit at the feet with God, and we really did that weekend, and then we came back to reality. (laughs) But it was a wonderful time, so thank you all that went, and hope to see you all next time, and we're having another women's ministry is Stories this Saturday coming up. So if you haven't registered, it's still open for registration. It's only $10. It's another wonderful event for all the women here. Thank you.
3: Amy, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Stories, this is an amazing event. Uh, I hope you have uh, signed up if you haven't. This is a great time to hear the stories of women uh, that you you, uh, probably see and know, but you haven't actually heard some incredible things that God has done in their life and, and brought them through. So, a great, great event to come to bring a friend to. Kind of a thing that when you when you leave, you'll say, oh, I wish we would have brought more people. Uh, but every year this sells out, so I hope you get a chance to be a part of that. And uh, we're just hoping that Ryan could come out of his shell. He is just, you know, we just want him to... Wasn't that fun hearing about the, the Harvest Festival? You know, uh, we are here in the presence of God who opens His arms wide to us and... and uh, welcomes us to come into his presence. And so during every service, uh, we, we take a time for an offering. And this is not just a collection of money moment, though it, it's convenient for that. Historically, that's what people have done in churches. But nowadays, we have people giving in so many ways. It's, it's not just about money. Uh, it's really about opening our hearts and our minds to God. And that's not to paper over the fact that a church needs money to function. What it's saying is the, the core of what we do in worship is opening our hearts and our minds to God. We're not just attending a service, we're coming into the presence of God. In fact, the the Bible tells us that that Jesus said that where where people are gathered in my name, I am there among them. And so if you don't know him and you're here today at somebody's invitation, we're so glad you're here. And our prayer is that God would maybe uh, be be speaking to you in a way that you might not expect, encouraging you, challenging you, calling you into a relationship with him. Uh, If you do know him and you're feeling discouraged or life is feeling overwhelming, we, we believe that these are, these are the moments when God comforts you and, and gives you clarity on the fact that He's with you and He has a plan for you. So this offering time is super important. Because we can collect money other ways, we still have an offering because we want to take time at every service to be able to say, Lord, speak to me. I'm here in your presence. I'm opening my mind to you, my heart to you, my life to you. And so as the music plays, as you, as you sing along this beautiful hymn, uh, as you let the words sink into your thinking uh, and to, your, to speak to your experience in life. Trust that God is here, uh, and God wants to say something to you in the rest of the morning. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have extended your arms wide to each one of us, that you accept us where we are. Uh, you help us go places we could never go but for you. Uh, you help us understand ourselves in ways that we would never otherwise be able to understand ourselves, to face our fears, to... Uh, face our challenges, to embrace the possibilities of, of uh, taking a, uh, a, another step toward you and understanding what you're doing in us and around us. So, Lord, as we receive this offering, really what, Lord, we pray is that uh, we would open our hearts and our minds to you, uh, given that you've invited us to do that, and you do receive us as we come into your presence. So we commit ourselves to you, and this worship service to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are starting a new series today in the book of Ruth. Um, how many of you are familiar with the book of Ruth? Have you heard of it? A lady came up to me after, after uh, the first service and said, I didn't know that was in the Bible. And I said, it's an amazing story, isn't it? She said, yeah. And it's, it's you know four little chapters, a little tiny slip of a, of a, of a book and you can easily pass over it and, and, and try to, good luck trying to find it. So just go right to the directory, just go to the, the table of contents and go to the page number. Um, don't fake it till you make it, just, just find your way there because it's really hard to find it in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament. Um, but this, this um, story of Ruth is not just a, a made up story, uh, this is a, a, a true story. This is a story that, of something that really happened. And we're going to use this story, uh, divided into four chapters, as a bridge to Advent. Advent is the beginning of the celebration of, of Christ's birth at Christmas. So December is, is a month of Advent, anticipation of Christ's birth. And to get there, we're going to build a bridge using uh, this book of Ruth, and as you walk through it, you're going to see why. By the way, uh, uh, each week, we send out an email. If you're on our email list, you get an email of of what's going on in the church, but you also get another email uh, we just sent out two weeks. This other email is called Read, Think, Pray, and it gives you a heads up as to what we're doing uh, in the service. And it's not a mini version of the sermon. It's, it's really a, an anticipation of where we're going with some scripture and some thoughts to help focus you so that when you get here, you're ready to begin a conversation. Because really, even though I'm doing the talking during a sermon or whoever is preaching is, is doing the talking, every sermon is a conversation. And the more we're prepared to enter into that conversation, the more powerful it is. Uh, because we don't want to just attend a, a worship service. We want to enter into it. We want to be full participants in it. So it's kind of weird to think about a worship what a worship service is. It's not just attending a religious event. And sometimes people will say, you know, well, I, I could go to church, so to speak. I could do this on the beach. Yes, you could, but you won't. Well, I could do this at home. You could absolutely not be easy, uh, but you won't. And even if you do, it's not the same as gathering with people because somehow, in the presence of other people, with God in the midst of us, uh, something happens that allows us to apprehend and understand His Word in ways we wouldn't otherwise. And so we want to enter into this process of, of walking together and, and thinking out loud about what is God doing in us right now, but what has he told us previously through his word to set us up to understand that and to get the most out of it. So that's where we're going, building this bridge uh, over the course of the month of November uh, toward Advent. And so, Ruth, uh, four chapters. The Bible was not written in chapters or verses. That's a later edition to help people find their way around in the book. So I'll go to chapter this and verse that. Uh, but this one breaks down nicely in four chapters. It's such a well-written story. Uh, you know how that goes when somebody tells you a true story, and it's so entertaining or so moving, and you think, did you make that up? And sometimes I've asked people, hey, is that how it happened? And they will say, well, it should have. You go, hmm, okay. In this case, this is not, well, it should have happened this way. We helped it along a little bit. We've added some things and deleted some things. Rather, what you get out of these biblical stories is a framing of the story in a way that you get maximum access to it. Why? Because they only had so much material to write it on. They're writing it on on perishable, expensive materials, papyrus or whatever they're writing it on. And so they had to really think about I've only got this much scroll. I've only got this much room. Uh, to write. So how do I really think about telling the story? And you know those people in your family who tell really good stories. And you think, are they exaggerating? Are they adding? You know, are they changing? Usually not. What they're doing is they've so lived with the story that by the time they tell it to you, uh, they've come up with the most efficient and effective way to tell it, and it pulls you in. It draws you in, and you say, oh my gosh, that is so helpful. So helpful. So that's what Ruth is all about. It's a helpful picture, uh, about what God has done to make it possible for us to be uh, sitting here today uh, getting ready to celebrate his birth uh, at Advent. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm subtitling Ruth chapter 1, When Better Turns to Bitter, because you're going to see that, that something that moved this family for something better actually became something they experienced uh, that they would say, this is very bitter. Uh, and so that's where we're going. Uh, this... Um, uh, we've been g- getting away the last few weeks uh, to just uh, catch up with our souls. You know, you've got to do that once in a while and just get a break. And so we've done some trips here and there. Well, when I got back uh, into town, uh, there was this letter, a mysterious letter from England for me. And I opened it up, and it was my birth certificate, which is kind of a weird thing to get. But it wasn't that weird because I had requested it. Uh, because um, uh, our youngest daughter, Megan, said, you know, I because my company and everything, I might want to work in Great Britain, and it'd be easier for me if I had a British passport, and you're my link. Since you were born there, uh, and you're, you have a right to have a passport and, and to claim citizenship, you, you know, I, I need your birth certificate to document my worthiness in qualifying. I said, oh, great, no problem. And then I hung up, I thought, I don't know where my birth certificate is. Do you know where your birth certificate is? You are all so smart and organized same, last, last, same thing last service everybody's like well yeah of course I know I, I, I assumed I have one I'm born you know, I just didn't know where it was I'm sure it's safe somewhere but I didn't know how to get my hands on it so I requested it and it was so fun reading this thing first of all I opened it up and it's written in Welsh which is really helpful but I was born in Wales, and so it's, wow, this is interesting, you know. Um, it's like I got a letter from The Hobbit, you know. <laughs> and so I'm reading it, and thankfully, underneath, there's these subtitles in English, so I could figure out what, what the categories were. Um, but, uh, and I knew this, but I, you know, when you, when you have a chance to rethink where, where you've come from, and I started to think about where I've come from and how complicated it is. Well, Steve, where are you from? Uh, well, I was born in a village called Hope, just a few miles uh, from the British border, so I'm actually British, because uh, Wales is a subcategory of Great Britain. But I'm also Irish, because my father is Irish, or was Irish. Um, may he rest in peace. And if he's Irish, wherever he is, way to go. You know, um, but so I'm, I'm English, and I'm Irish from Wales. But my father also was an American citizen, so I'm an American. And I've lived most of my life in California, so I'm a Californian. Uh, and I'm a San Diegan, because I live in the county and the city of San Diego, but I'm a La jolla because I live in a place that has a specific zip code called La Jolla. So if you send me a mail, you have to write La Jolla on it. Uh, does that get complicated? Yeah. No, for you it doesn't because you know all those places. You say, oh yeah, these are administrative districts, cities, counties, countries. And so yeah, it makes perfect sense. When you pick up the Bible, all that goes away. You start reading about these places, you have no context for what I just described to you. When you read the Bible, you say, no, make up your mind, where are you from? Are you from Hope? Are you from Wales? Are you from Great Britain? Are you from Ireland? Are you where in America, you know, you, and so all these subcategories bring you to a place where you say, ah, oh, I think I understand my journey. I understand the context of my life. And so in, in this book, don't be uh, overwhelmed or put off by all the, the names and, and the places because they, they, we have no context for them. But the writer says, writes it as if you should know this. Of course, I'm just telling you the things that you already know, and so now you get to dial in the story. And out of that story, there's all these cultural things. So we're going to explore some of this. So if if at times it seems tedious, forgive me, but that's just what I do. I'm really good at tedium, and I try to share it with everybody I know. But really what I'm trying to do is to give you a context so that as you read the whole Bible, that those names and those places would start to, to come alive to you in a way you'd say, oh, I get that. Those of you who have been to Israel, and I hope every one of you, however you manage to do it, go to Israel, because when you walk through Israel, when you walk that land, when you travel through that land, all of a sudden the Bible goes 3D in technicolor, because you say, oh, I've been there, I know that. So for those of you who are going to hear me say Bethlehem, you're going to go, been there, done that, and you should eat that when you go. All right, so uh, that's where we're going to go as, as we jump into the first chapter of Ruth, and those of you who are used to baby Ruth, this is the big, full-blown Ruth. This is not a baby Ruth moment. This is a big Ruth moment. So in the days when the judges ruled, right up front, we're confused. What does that mean? Who are the judges? What were they ruling? Uh, when we think of judges, we think of people who listen to testimony and, and deliver a verdict. This, this term, judges, simply means people who served as leaders, national leaders, inspiring leaders, sometimes militarily, uh, otherwise just saying to the country uh, of Israel that's coming together, look, this is who we are, this is what we do, this is how we roll, this is what it means to be a follower of, of the one and only God. This is what it means for us to be uh, Jews. These are people who have come out of captivity to a land that God had promised them prior to the 400 years of their captivity. They've made a journey over 40 years, not that it took 40 years to get there, but because of their, their unwillingness to obey God, it took them 40 uh, years to go, it would have normally taken them four weeks. So here they are, finally in the land that God had promised to them, and God raises up these leaders to guide them, but really God is their leader. And so the message is, follow the Lord. Uh, tr- you know, decide, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. That's what Joshua said as they went into this new promised land that we know as is Israel. But along the way, God would raise up these people, the prophets, hey, get back on track, or these judges, let's, let's gather together and remember who we are. So that's what we're talking about. It's a period from about 1200 BC to about 1020. Because in 1020 BC, they got the first king, a guy named Saul. And the second king was a guy named David. So that's as much as I'm going to talk about that right now. But that's the context. That's the window. Whenever it was written, we don't know. But this is the window that we're looking at. Sometime in that period of the judges. And you know some of the judges. Names like Samson, Gideon, uh, perhaps Deborah, some of these other names. These were the people that God raised up. And so uh, in this time period, there was a famine in the land. The country of Israel, if you haven't been, you think of it as sand dunes and camels, desolate wasteland kind of a thing. It's actually drop-dead beautiful. When you go there, the coast feels like our coast. Uh, The deserts feel like Palm Springs and Anza Borrego. But a lot of the country feels like Napa and Mendocino and Sonoma, just beautiful uh, it's a verdant, gorgeous place to go, especially if you go, like, in March or so or after the rains. It's just beautiful. Wildflowers everywhere. But also, because uh, it's got um, hills and, and uh, uh, different kinds of environments, it's a, it's a place that can be subject to famine. If, if the rains don't come at the right time, if you're disrupted by war, you can have a famine in a hurry, and it becomes very serious because there's no place to go shop for stuff. If you don't grow it, it isn't available to you for the most part. So there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, this is a small town, Bethlehem. You know the name, probably the most familiar name in the Bible, Bethlehem. Jesus is born there. Beautiful little town uh, in Judah. Judah was the name of one of the tribes and because that's the region. uh, That's the context for this small town named Bethlehem. So together with his wife and two sons, he went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And this for a while matters because Moab is not a place they would want to live. They didn't like the people who lived in Moab because in their mind, the people of Moab were beneath their dignity. Because a 1,000 years previous to this, a man named Lot, whose uncle was a man named Abraham, had left his burning city called Sodom and Gomorrah and said, now where do we go? And his wife uh, took a break um, forever turned into a pillar of salt because she disobeyed God and looked back at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot and his two daughters said, well, now what? And, and, and it got kind of ugly because uh, he had uh, an incestuous relationship with both his daughters. He didn't know it. They got him drunk, and it's not that they're, their fault, but they said, where's our family going to come from? So they, they have this relationship with their father. And out of that comes a son named Ammon and a son named Moab. We know them and their descendants as Jordan. So when you look on a map, and the Mediterranean is here, and Israel is here, and the countries that are here, that's Jordan. If you go further east, it's Saudi Arabia. If you go south, it's Egypt. If you go north, it's Lebanon and Syria. Now you know where it is. And in the middle uh, of this country, Bethlehem is in this beautiful place where it's really great to raise sheep. And so they go for a while to Moab, because we don't want to go there very long. Who wants to live in Moab? But it's verdant. We can, we, can, we can grow food, we can f- sustain ourselves, so that when we come back, we'll be OK. So it's only 50 miles away. But it's light years in terms of culture. And it's a hard 50 miles. It's a hard, if you were to walk it today, you'd go, oh, this is the hardest 50 miles I've ever, I've ever walked. Rocky, hot, uh, desolate, very tough. And meanwhile, there's, pe- there's bandits, and et cetera. So this is a, a for a while sort of deal. The man's name was Elimelech. Not that that matters, but Melech means king, Eli, so it means God is my king. So he's, he's, a, very, he's a righteous man. His wife's name was Naomi, which means pleasant. And the names of his two sons don't even matter. Um, <laughs> but Mal, uh, Malon and Kilion. Uh, they, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. That should be very helpful to you, so we'll move on. Ephrathites, what is that about? Well, in, in the Aramaic language, the, the area was called uh, Ephratha. And then it was later changed into a Hebrew word, Bethlehem, house of bread. So it's like me saying, yeah, I came from Hope. It's in the region of um, Howard. It's in in Wales. You know, so that kind of deal. So the Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, that gives you the, the location. They went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, which is an immediate crisis. If you do not have a husband to provide for you, it's a big crisis. Some women discover having gotten married, having a husband is a big crisis, but in this day and age, not having a husband was a bigger crisis. Uh, And so she was left with her two sons, so, oh, it's okay, because I've got two sons. There was no social security, there was no safety net. If you didn't have a husband, pray to God you have sons, Well, they have daughters who have uh, husbands. And so this is bad, but we've got the sons. And these sons married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, which is way longer than they planned on it, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, we just read that as an interesting fact. Oh, okay, move on. No. it's like And so Naomi had a death sentence hanging over her head. Naomi's life just got taken out from under her. It unraveled. Everything that she had hoped for that thought, she thought would be better is now not coming together, and in fact, it's falling apart. This is a m- crisis of epic Proportions. This is not, oh, how inconvenient. This is like the person who, in one of these recent fires, said, I've just lost everything I own. I've lost everything I own. I couldn't get insurance because I live in a fire zone. We had a fire. Everything I have has been destroyed. And because I work where I live, I have no income. And because everybody I know has suffered the same thing, we can't help each other. And because the people who could work can't work Uh, what are we going to do? We're going to die. And so this is how bad it was. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people back home by providing food for them, okay, the the famine is over, the drought has subsided, things are back to normal, good timing. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Now, remember, it's not home to the daughters-in-law. It's home to Naomi. Remember, the daughters are Moabites it's going to be kind of awkward being a Moabite going back to Judah, Bethlehem. But there's a very special relationship that they share. So we see this. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. There's such a tight, beautiful relationship among these women that she goes, let's go back to Judah. And along the way, 50 hard miles, it takes a long time to get those 50 miles it starts to sink in to Naomi. Dear God, what am I thinking? What am I taking these young women into? They're already widows, and now they're going to an inhospitable place that doesn't like widows or Moabites. And so she's thinking this and processing this. So she says, hmm. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, hey, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. It's really great to have these two young women to help but she's thinking, convenient for me, not so much for them. Go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. Do you see the beauty of this relationship? It's this word kindness, chesed, it means it's, it's a word we use for God. It's God's compassion and kindness toward us. We use the word chesed. When Micah says, he has told you, oh man, what is good to, to, to love God, to practice kindness and to walk humbly with him. That's the word she's using here. This is a very special, beautiful relationship she has with these young women. They are like her daughters. This is not just a formal legal relationship. She loves them and they love her. But as, she, as it sinks in what she's asking them to do and where she's taking them, she goes, oh, this isn't good. Go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. That's your only hope. You're amazing women, Uh, you have a lot to offer, and uh, you'll 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 easily find a husband, and that's what you need right now. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. That's how much they were devoted to her. We know what it's like to be a Moabite there. We know it's not good, but we are with you. We're for you. You can count on us. We'll face that. We'll take that. And then she says, return home, my daughters why would you come with me am i going to have any more sons who could become your husbands this was the pattern this was the this was the the way the culture worked if your husband died uh, his brother was obligated to marry you and to have a family with you to continue the husband's legacy and those children would then inherit everything the husband had this is how it worked everybody knew the rules it was accepted as normative and the only question was who are those who are the people closest enough Uh, to to do that. Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. Too complicated. I wouldn't ask you to do that. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. You see what's happening She's, she's feeling the massive weight of her grief and loss. And these beautiful young women uh, are so with her. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Now, Orpah leaves and does what, what Naomi asks her to do. She's not abandoning Naomi. She's actually doing the right thing. She knows this is her duty. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. What we see here is that these young women have accepted the God of Israel. They've accepted the ways of the Jews. They've, they've, they've completely uh, bonded with Naomi. Uh, and Orpah knows it's heartbreaking either way, so she will honor Naomi and go back to her family. Ruth says, I'm with you. And so Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. And this is, these are some of those beautiful words ever written in the Bible. And in fact, some of those beautiful words ever spoken in human history. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. It gives me goosebumps reading those words. Powerful, beautiful words. Do you have anybody in your life who would say that? I hope you do. I, I know you do. I pray you do. Don't you want that to be your, your mom, your daughter, your friend, your husband? your brother, your sister, your grandparents? Don't you want that to be your neighbor? I'm here for you. It's pretty neat to read some of these stories after the massive tragedy of the fires up north, people pulling together against all odds to be there for each other. Uh, If you've been following the story a year after the Paradise Fire and see that devastated community coming together, often embodied in the football team, the high school football team, It's sort of the the, the picture, the symbol of that community coming together. We are for each other. And this is what you see here. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Are you getting drawn into this story? Powerful, powerful story. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Now, there's a double kind of a meaning here, right? You don't need to know Hebrew to feel like, ah, oh, there's something else going on here. On the face of it, you say, oh, can this be Naomi? Oh, my gosh, Naomi's back. Hey, everybody, Naomi's here. Fantastic. It's also, can this be Naomi, what happened to you? Why are you so haggard? Why are you so dispirited? Why are you so beaten down? Why do you look like you've faced death itself? Oh, because you have been facing death. You have been beaten down. The life has been sucked out of you by what you've been through. Can this be Naomi? So apparently what we see in the beauty of that relationship with her daughters in law is what her friends experience of her, this bright, vibrant presence, this person who just brought the best out in you. This person who you'd say, if, if, Na- if Naomi's here, it's going to be okay. And, and now the Naomi they see, you go, oh, my gosh, Naomi. What do you, where do you begin? Can this be Naomi? What else can you say? And then she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. She told them, call me Mara, Bitter. Bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. Wait a minute. She went away because it was a famine. How could it be full in the famine? She went away full of hope and promise. It will get better. I'll return triumphant and get on with my real life. But that's not how it's working out. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Pleasant. And technically, her name is pleasantness, one who experiences a pleasant life. Why call me Naomi? The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. And notice, the writer of the story is, is rubbing our noses in this. Oh yeah, remember she's from Moab? And she's a Moabite. Now, again, we gloss over that and say, oh, interesting, Moab. you've already said that, let's get on. No, this is to remind us, this is bad, this is very, very bad. It's awkward being a Moabite. And if I gave all the examples of people coming from other countries who would maybe experience this in our country, I'll offend somebody. So I won't. But this is the equivalent of, oh, you're from there. Hmm. Wow, you married one of those. Wow. And what the writer wants us to know is there's something bigger going on here. If you're focusing on what you think about Moabites, you're missing the whole point of this story. You're missing the beautiful thing God wants to do in people, in every tribe, in every nation. God is above every culture, but God works through every culture. Everyone is beloved in the sight of God. Everybody is welcomed. How do we know this? Because when God promised Abram to create a nation through him, he said, every family on earth will be blessed through you. Every nation will be blessed through you. No tribe, no person, no ethnicity will be left out. And so the writer wants us to know, God is doing something very big in this very crazy and dispiriting situation. And if you're focusing on the fact that it's from Moab and a Moabite, you're going to miss it. But you're also going to be so surprised and blown away when you see where God takes this. This is where we're going in the rest of the story. And I love the fact that the writer says, as the barley harvest was beginning, we're, to us, we're like, yeah, interesting. Think a lot about the barley harvest in my neighborhood. It's constantly on my mind. Oh, only a few months till the barley harvest. Can't wait. Uh, what this was saying is it's springtime. It's Passover time. It's a time when God told them, celebrate the fact that you've been delivered from bondage. This is the time when you've been told to celebrate that you once lived a bitter life, and now you are living a better life. Very powerful. Well, let's, let's just reflect on this for a few minutes of the time we have. You have two women in a very vulnerable situation, right? Widows in a world inhospitable to them. Nothing has changed. We are a little blip in our country. In parts of the Western world, we are such an exception to the rule. We think this is the norm. It is not the norm. We've had women in our congregation over the years who uh, have have become widowed, uh, and their families have said, don't ever come back to Kenya It will kill you. Because everything that belonged to your husband now belongs to us. Uh, we had a, um, some of you um, um, have met some of the people who've come through our congregation who've experienced this. Uh, it, it's so pronounced that um, a woman named Jane Crane, if you know Chris and Jane Crane, Jane wrote a book about this, documenting in this day the, the, the incredible burden of being a widow in most places of the world. Your rights disappear. Your economic viability disappears. Your social status disappears. Your very life is threatened because people say, you're in the way of us claiming what we believe is ours. Widows become immediately invisible and insanely, intensely vulnerable. And so Naomi returning home is definitely feeling bitter. Ruth leaving home to live as a foreigner is saying, "What's what's going to happen to me? Feeling vulnerable is scary, isn't it? Have you ever felt vulnerable? Have you ever truly felt vulnerable? I cou- and I can answer the question for you. Yes, you have. Every, every human being has experienced vulnerability at some point. Maybe it was when you were a little kid at the grocery store or at the mall, and you're looking at your mom or your dad. Next thing you know, you're preoccupied doing something. You turn around, and they're gone. You've been abandoned and left for good at Vons. <laughs> you will spend the rest of your life at Westfield Mall. It couldn't get worse. You're vulnerable. Everybody's big. You don't know anybody. Uh, And you're freaking out and your parents of course freaking out because they think you've left and they think you've left them right kind of a thing Feeling vulnerable is scary. Why because being vulnerable is being at risk One of the one of the if you ever if you follow people who travel internationally and ask them Especially if you ask women uh, when you travel what's first and foremost on your mind? Will I be safe at night walking? Will I be safe anywhere, dining alone? Will I be so obvious and conspicuous that I'm putting myself in jeopardy? And the answer is yes. Oh, no, no, the world is so sophisticated. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, it really is. And yes, you're in danger. Oh, it's such a beautiful community. My children can just go out and play and and run around at will. Mm hmm yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't count on that. We live in a crazy world where kids should be able to run free, and they can't. I never had a play date. Probably you didn't either. But we would have never let our kids just run out and, it's breakfast, will see you at dinner, you know? So being vulnerable is being at risk. It feels unsafe. Why? Because we are in a world that is incredibly unsafe. We're not supposed to be paranoid, but we're supposed to recognize that. But here's the thing, trying to be strong without vulnerability is scarier. I'm not vulnerable. I'm not at risk. Hmm. I'm strong and I'm in control. Of course you are. Why is that scarier than recognizing vulnerability? Here's why. Because when you say, I do not feel vulnerable, I am not at risk, it hardens our heart to God and to people. I don't need anyone or anything. We don't like feeling weak. We don't like feeling at risk. Guys especially, but nobody, men, women, kids, teenagers, nobody likes feeling at risk. And we often in our culture experience weakness and vulnerability as failure. Why would I get counseling? It means I can't manage my own life maybe it means you're smart enough to call in some support who can give you some good advice yeah. so you can manage your life. But until we get to that place, it's like, that's, a, that's an admission of failure and weakness. Why would I do that? Why would I pay somebody to listen to me, tell me what I already know? That's ridiculous. Mm, okay, How's it going for you, by the way? Well, not very well. Well, maybe you want to rethink the fact that if you can deal with your vulnerability, the strength that's just out of reach will all of a sudden be in your hand. We often experience weakness as failure. The death of a dream for a better life can make us, any of us, bitter if we allow it to. It's disruptive and destabilizing. When that dream dies, whatever that dream looks like, uh, it's destabilizing. It's disruptive. It's depressing. It's disorienting. The question is, why now? Why is this happening? I thought it was going to be so great. And now what? What now? Why now and what now are the questions that come to our mind. Suffering betrayal or abuse, losing a loved one or a job, a home, our health, or anything we yearn for brings grief and anger and hurt and fear and embarrassment and loneliness and, yes, bitterness, right? I can't do what I used to do. I don't have what I used to have. The people I could turn to are no longer available to turn to. They're dead or gone. The world becomes a very lonely place. You can be surrounded by thousands of people and feel so abjectly alone and at risk and vulnerable. So here's the good news. God is with us and for us. God is with us and for us. That's not happy talk, wishful thinking. That's recognizing reality. God is with you and God is for you. Yeah, but I wouldn't be in this situation if, call me bitter, don't call me pleasant, and it's God's fault because he put me here. He's afflicting me. Okay. Don't hide your vulnerability or your weakness. No, I'm not vulnerable. I'm not weak. And don't hide behind it. I'm vulnerable. I'm weak. You can't really count on me. Vulnerability is not learned helplessness, where we learn how to always make people feel like they have to rescue us, right? Vulnerability is not false humility. I really can't do anything, right? Maybe if you get off your rear end, you could do something, but... It's not false humility. I can't do anything. I have nothing to contribute. Vulnerability is not victimhood. I guess nobody likes me. I guess it's always going against me. Vulnerability is not passivity. Nothing to be done. I have no power. Hmm. Okay. Do you you follow these? These are very subtle things. Either the, the pride of saying, I am not vulnerable, I am not at risk. Or, I'm so vulnerable at risk, I get a hall pass from being responsible in life. So God shows us through the Bible, that throughout the Bible, the whole Bible, that his strength is revealed in our vulnerability. God meets us at our place of vulnerability. Why? Because God wants us to be strong and resilient, but he meets us at our place of weakness and vulnerability. How do I know? Because I read the Bible. Gideon, one of the great judges of Israel, one of the great, in a sense, savior models of the country, against all odds, he's in a threshing floor hiding because he didn't want to have to deal with people. And God speaks to him and says, hey, you're going you're gonna to be the judge of, of your people. You're going to save your people from the onslaught of their enemies. He goes, hey, wait a minute, God. You might not have noticed. I'm the weakest member and the weakest family and the weakest tribe in, in, in the nation. I am not the candidate you think I am. God says, I will meet you at that place. Not only does he meet him at that place, even the way he uses Gideon is so ridiculously crazy that he lets most of the army go and there's just a few hundred guys left to do what looks like an impossible task, and yet they fulfill that. How about Ruth herself? We're going to be exploring her life. How about Mary, a a young girl, a teenager virtually, saying, your will be done, God. I don't know how this could happen, I don't know why me, but your will be done. Weak and vulnerable, a laughable situation if it weren't so serious that she could lose her life. Jesus himself, in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, if this can pass, if this cup can pass, let it pass, but not my will, yours be done. A very clear picture of weakness and vulnerability. He's sweating drops of blood as he says this. Paul, the great apostle, the international man, says, you know, I prayed three times for God to relieve me of this weakness, this infirmity I had. And he said, no, three times. And then he said, my strength is perfected, or is brought to completion, is revealed in the midst of your weakness. Is there any place in your life right now you're feeling weak and vulnerable? God will meet you there. God will give you strength there. It might not look or feel like the way you expect it to look or feel. But God keeps his word. He keeps his promises. Now, especially to those of you who maybe suffer chronic pain for a lifetime, you're thinking, well, I'm still going to have pain, or I'm still not going to be able to walk very well. I'm still not going to be able to do what I used to do. Right. It's horrible. God is with you. God is for you. He will meet you in that place. It sounds ridiculous, but we know it's true because God keeps his word. So what does godly vulnerability look like? It, it's, it looks like this. It's living the truth of Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and staff, they keep me. You create a table, a feast for me, the presence of my enemies. It looks like this. It's receiving the comfort of Romans eight twenty eight. Nothing and no one can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Neither death nor life, neither any kind of threat. It's saying, not my will but yours be done. It's how we learn sheer, dogged endurance. That's what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, he goes, hey, he said, you can have hope and sheer, dogged endurance in the Lord. They're being persecuted. They feel like God has abandoned them. And Paul's writing them this letter that says, guess what, you can have sheer, dogged endurance in the midst of your vulnerable, weak situation. It's how God's grace meets us. It's how God's grace meets our absolute need for his absolute grace. This is the crazy thing that we read in the Bible. And it would be crazy if it were not true. It would be laughable, wishful thinking, happy talk, if it were not true. And for people who put their weight on it, they, d- they discover that it is in fact true. So get up, get going, embrace the new day. That's the message. Not put on a happy face and pretend everything is okay. But get up, get going, embrace the new day, as in, Lord, this is the day that you have made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Not in my circumstances, I will rejoice in your presence in the midst of my circumstances. Walk with God into the next chapter of life. Vulnerability means being open and curious. Open, Lord, this is so beyond me. And I'm curious what you're going to do with it. If, maybe some of you have heard me say this before. If you could stand with God and look back over the whole course of your life, and, and he would say, any questions about what you went through? Yes, I do. Why did I go through that? Why did you let me go through that? And he would show you the whole context, what he, what he did in you and around you and through you that you were not even aware of, that was so essential for your well-being and the well-being of others, blessing you to bless others. And he'd show you that in a way you'd never seen or experienced it before. And he'd say, are you okay with that? And you'd say, oh, my God, it was you. Look what you did. I couldn't see it. You're right. You couldn't see it. And I couldn't explain it to you to, that you'd be able to see it. But this is what I did. And you would say, it's, it's all right. I, 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 I'm good at that. So it's where God teaches us faith, hope, love, trust, resilient responsibility. It's the bridge to finding authentic, authentic strength. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're going to be exploring in this book of Ruth. We find, that it, it, we find that in holy communion with him, we find that in a holy communion with one another. In a deep communion, a deep relationship with a living God, we discover this. We test this. We see that it's true. in a deep, abiding relationship with one another. We get to test the efficacy of this. So right now, you might not be sure who you are. I used to be this because this is how I saw myself. And now it's different, so I'm not sure how to see me. I'm not sure how to value me. I'm not sure how to embrace me. I'm not sure how to be okay with me right now. You might not be sure about where you belong. I don't know what I have to offer. I don't think I have anything to offer. I think I'm a burden. I'd be better off dead. But know this, if you're feeling that, you belong to God and you belong to the body of Christ. And even in the state that you're in, God is doing a work in you and God is doing a work through you. As hard as that is to believe. And so when you feel unsafe or at risk, ask yourself, how do I need to receive love? And ask yourself this question, how do I need to give love? The antidote to bitterness is love. <laughs> Let that sink in. Not, not putting a smile or happy face on, on, on sorrow. It's learning how to love other people. That's the antidote to dealing with bitterness in your life. And so when you're in the, if you're right now in the depth of, of depression and grief, we're not saying you should be happy and loving. We're saying, okay, this is a season you're going through. But eventually what you're going to be able to do is move through that season and, and embrace love that you need, and you're going to be able to offer love that people need. This is the beauty and the power of what God does. This is the the, the story that gets reversed. We think better, and and it becomes bitter. We see bitter, we say it can never get better. God says, I will make it better. Endless life or the next, but you can be sure that what God does is better than anything we can do, in spite of what we feel, what we experience in this life. And it's not a postponed life. It's in this life. He's going to do something better if we would simply pay attention to him. So Lord Jesus, I pray that that would be the case for us, that we could embrace the life that we're actually living in spite of all the things that we don't like about it or can't understand about it. And that I pray, Lord, that we could see you in the midst of circumstances that seem overwhelming on the face of it, undeserved that nobody would wish on anyone. I pray, Lord, in the midst of that, uh, we could meet you and see you in a fresh way. I pray in the midst of our successes, we wouldn't lose sight of you. I pray, Lord, that we would not accept the myth that it's all about us, but we would come to understand that it's really all about you, and it includes us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on that night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and uh, having... Blessed he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It reminds us of his weakness and his vulnerability. Though he submitted himself as God to being a slave, a servant on our behalf, and though he he experienced death at our hands, God raised him up so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the same manner, in that meal, at the end of it, he took a cup and having blessed it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And So as you come forward to receive Holy Communion, uh, you'll hear words like this. This is Christ's body given for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. Take some of this gluten-free matzah and and dip it into the the, the cup, the unfermented uh, grape juice. And then return to your seat and just marvel at what God has done make it possible for you to be alive in him. And if you're not a believer, we don't impose this on you. You don't have to do this. Uh, We honor the fact that if you're not a believer, this is not for you. Uh, But if you have a a hope, a faith in Christ, this is for you. No matter where you've come from, where you've been, uh, we we invite you to come and receive this in Jesus' name. So I want to invite those who are serving communion to come forward. Some will be in the front, some will be in the back. Simply go to the the, the place closest to you uh, and receive Holy Communion. And let's continue worshiping the Lord as we do that. I recognize you you're a beloved child of god you are a beloved child of god embrace your identity wherever it's bitter it will get better because he is with you and he is for you if we can pray for you for anything that concerns you or anybody you're concerned about go right out around the corner into the prayer garden that lovely garden in the front and there'll be people who will pray for you you don't even have to tell them what you want prayer for Uh, But if you do have a request you want to tell them about, fine. And they will pray for you before you leave. Uh, We are sustained by the abiding presence of Christ and the support of his people. That's a powerful combination that shapes who we are. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, giving us his love, his peace, his power, his abiding presence both now and forevermore, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.